Well, our passage today begins with Hebrews 3, verse 7, and continues on through chapter 4, verse 3. So I encourage you to turn there, and then stand, if you will, as we read God's Word and respect it as His holy, inspired Word. Hebrews 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial and in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. That's God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, as we take in your word, as we try to understand what we read here, I pray that you would give us not only understanding, but a quickness to listen and a quickness to act where we find areas in our lives that do not conform to your word and, and are challenged by what we study today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, most of us like to tell stories, and when I think of a story that exemplifies God's providential protection in the midst of life-threatening danger, I tell the story about the time I was buried in snow during a blizzard on a cross-country trip. When I think about a story that relates to my wonder at God blessing me despite wrong priorities, I tell the story of meeting Wendy during track practice at the University of California. And you all have similar type stories. What story would you use to warn people? What traumatic lesson did you learn in your life that, if you had the opportunity to tell others, would be used by you to help them make better choices? Well, that's what's happening here in chapter 3 of Hebrews. The author has spent two chapters and a little more getting our attention, and he has wanted us to take Christ and his message seriously, and now he tells us, a story. And it's a familiar story. It's a retelling of what happened to the first generation of Israelites during the Exodus. And the warning is clear as it's stated in verse 8, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Why? 
The result of the rebellion was a landscape, as verse 17 describes, littered with corpses. And then you would ask, well, didn't the Israelites witness all of the plagues? And didn't they marvel over being passed over by God when the, while the firstborn sons of Egypt died? Did they not stumble forth in astonishment to, as the Red Sea was parted before them and Moses' outstretched hand? Did they not watch then the waves crash down on their enemies after they had crossed the Red Sea? Didn't they partake with amazement at the manna and the, the quail which God miraculously provided every day in the midst of a desert? And didn't they stand on the other side of the Red Sea and, and they sang triumphantly the song of Moses about, and you know the words, some of you, sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider fell into the sea. They triumphed in that. They, they sang and celebrated that. So, so what happened? Well, what happened is the main point of the story. And I hope by the time that we're done this afternoon, each of you will remember that point. But before we get to it, let me make just a few comments. First, I think we see the stirrings of big problems early on in Israel's deliverance. Turn with me for just a moment to Exodus 17, verse 1. In that chapter... We see the beginning of the wilderness journey, the Exodus, and it says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, a very appropriately named uh, place, according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink, and therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And so Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and they complained against Moses and said, why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt? Is it to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and the water will come out that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And you can understand the scene. You can put yourselves there with the Israelites. The people ate and drank as the Lord had provided each day, but on the day that they camped in Rephidim, it says God tested them. He didn't feed them that day and provide the water that they expected. And Hebrews 3 verse 8 calls it the day of trial. And so God withholds water from them for a short time and His intent was to reveal the heart of this nation, to give them an opportunity to trust that He would provide water for them. And unfortunately, the test results weren't good, were they? Instead of responding positively, the Israelites turn the tables. They put God to the test. They grumble. They complain that he has led them into the wilderness 
to die. And so Moses names the place Massah, which means testing, and Meribah, which means rebellion. Now go back to Hebrews chapter 3. And realize that not long after this incident, there was a second test. The Israelites had set up camp at Kadesh Barnea. And there God instructed them to send spies into Canaan in a covert operation to determine the country's strengths and weaknesses and to come back with a report that encouraged and exhorted the Israelites. And they came back and said, well, we went to the land where you sent us, and you were right, it truly flows with milk and with honey, and this is its fruit. They brought it back to the people, but nevertheless, they said, you have to imagine yourself being Moses, who's dealt so far with these complaining people. When he hears the word nevertheless, it's like, but the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified, very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, they dwell in the mountains. The Canaanites dwell in by the sea along the banks of the Jordan. You can see the hearts of the Israelites beginning to sink as they're hearing this report from 10 of the 12 spies. And so then Caleb quieted the people. That means they were getting agitated. He quiets them. Wait. Listen. And he says, let us go up at once and take possession. For we are well able to overcome it. But the other ten, the men who had gone up with them said, we are not able to go up against the people. For they are stronger than we are. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, number says, which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. And then you listen to this last part. And there we saw giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. So before there was one battle, one battle against a Canaanite, the Israelites have already judged their abilities. And instead of an attitude of if God is with us and against the Egyptians, for example, then who could stand? The Egyptians couldn't stand. Canaanites won't be able to stand. If powerful people are against us, that doesn't matter. But that's not what they said was it they said if powerful people are against us who can be for us and you probably caught what they said we were like grasshoppers what in our own sight that was a key point we were like grasshoppers in our own sight and therefore we were also in their sight because of the way we viewed ourselves And as a result, the Canaanites, who we learn later, had been fearing the arrival. They had heard reports of what had happened with the Egyptians, but also with those on the east side of the Jordan. The Canaanites, who were fearing their arrival, all of a sudden begin to think, oh, wait a second. These guys aren't as tough as we heard they were. They're afraid of even crossing the Jordan. And so with their perspective and attitude, the resistance that lay across the Jordan loomed ominously before them. And it's truly sad 
When we read about the Israelite response in Numbers 14, it says all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if we, only we had died in this wilderness. What a, what a comment. If only we had died in this wilderness, we wouldn't have to die at the hands even of these people. It is truly a desperate response by the Israelites. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? It's better for us to select a new leader and return to Egypt. That's what they say. How much worse could they have failed this test? Never mind that the Pharaoh's army had perished in the Red Sea. Never mind that they had been living a life of involuntary slavery and their children were being killed already in a planned program by the Egyptian leaders to winnow out any strength and true population of the Hebrew people. They wanted to actually die in the wilderness. And God's response is, you want to die in the wilderness rather than trust me? Fine. He had tolerated their unbelief for the last time, grants their wish, and their slow death over 40 years becomes a grim reminder of how seriously God treats the sin of unbelief and a hardened heart. So what is the point of telling this story? Because the author intends for us to learn something from it. It's this, God will test you. He will test you. He has tested every single one of his children, including his son, Jesus. He will test you just as he tested the early church. And you will face a decision. And that decision is, will I become fearful and will I complain? Will I become discontent? Will I doubt what God has planned for me? Will I forget everything that God has done, not only for me, but for generations of people before me for thousands of years? Because we don't just point back to the Red Sea and the plagues against Egypt. We point back to all of the things that God has done since then for thousands of years. Will I forget the great work of Christ our faithful high priest, will I respond in rebellion, in unbelief? How do I know that's the point of this story? Look at verse 12. Beware, brethren, i.e., this is the point, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So God will test you. You will be tempted to rebel because none of us like the pain of trial. And sometimes when we get caught up in the challenges of living in this cursed and sinful world like the Israelites, we are tempted to lose sight of the great hope that lies before us. We are tempted to lose sight of the fact that God has already won. He is king. He is reigning on his throne until all of his enemies be made a footstool under his feet. And we become tempted to lose sight of this great hope which lies before us, the promise of God with us. 
And we give up the joy and the peace that God offers and exchange it for anxious lives. We look at the invincible giants around us and we give up before we ever start because they are unconquerable in our own eyes. What is the giant in your life? Is it your marriage? Is it your attempt to parent one of your children? Is it your employer? Is it an illness that you're facing? Is it disappointment? Is it failure? Is it just being able to cope? Author A.W. Pink once wrote, Testing reveals the state of our hearts. A crisis neither makes nor mars a man, he wrote, but it does manifest him. While all is smooth sailing, we appear to be getting along nicely, but are we? Are our minds stayed upon the Lord, or are we instead complacently resting in his temporal mercies? When the storm breaks, it's not so much that we fail under it, as that our habitual lack of leaning upon God, our habitual lack of depending upon him, is made evident. And that's a powerful last statement, so let me read it again. When the storm breaks, it's not so much that it's so powerful that it blows us over and we can't stand. It's not so much that as it is our habitual lack of leaning upon God, our habitual lack of depending upon Him being made evident. I think what we take out of this is that a complaining spirit is an indicator of unbelief. Are you a complainer? Are you regularly grumpy and sour? You need to hear this warning from Hebrews today. If we find ourselves grumbling over God's providence, it is because we doubt His wisdom or His goodness, or even His power to lead and protect us. In other words, we doubt His worthiness to be trusted. Another author writes, Complaint is the flag of ingratitude, and it waves above the center of unbelieving hearts. What does verse 10 of Hebrews 3 say? They always go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways. So God considers our rebellious, ungrateful, complaining, sour attitude in which we resist His goodness to be a reflection of the fact that we do not know His ways. We are not considering His ways. The very thing the author has been asking us to do. In the story of the Exodus, it's surprising that that would be the case. Given how much they experienced We would think that Israel knew God's ways pretty well. But Israel was interested in what God could do for them. Not in God Himself. Their unbelief produced first complaint and then an irreverence for God's leaders, Moses and Joshua, and ultimately sinful disobedience. And friends, salvation... Therefore, it's not a matter of knowing God's blessings, but of knowing Him. Of understanding His ways and character. Of trusting Him in all circumstances, particularly in the difficult ones. 
And some of you this morning have been giving in to unbelief. It may be out of discontentment in your current situation. It may be because of the stress of a relationship or a work. It may be because you thought you were following God's plan and all of a sudden you're concerned about what looms in the future. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what was that attitude? He writes in verse 14, we do all things without complaining, without disputing. So many of us really don't treat complaining very seriously as if it's a small matter in our lives. Reminds me of another statement of Paul with respect to our attitudes in Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The opposite of a discontent, sour, complaining spirit is one that is filled with gratitude and all things rejoicing, giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus Christ. And our attitude is important. The way we are acting, the things we say, the emotions that we express, all of those reflect and manifest who we are, as Pink said. And we do not want to be like the Israelites who perished in the desert because God will not tolerate our unbelief forever. So having warned all of us individually with regard to our hearts, the author now instructs us as the church in verse 13. He says, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I want you to understand something, that that the author is writing to the church. He's not writing to society that doesn't profess God or a worldly people. He's writing to the church. And he says, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. This is a threat to us as a church. When we begin to complain, we naturally begin to isolate ourselves from others. We grow bitter. And not only do we not relish the company of others, but others don't necessarily enjoy being around us. But that isolation only breeds further danger because we easily convince ourselves that our negative spirit is justified. And the author says, we must be exhorted by our brothers and sisters. Christianity is not an individual but a team endeavor. And the author says to do that exhorting today. Today, while it is the present time, while we have the opportunity right now, if you see someone struggling in their walk, struggling with having a thankful spirit, struggling with being habitually sour and grumbling, you must exhort them today. Whatever that day is, not just on Sunday. And that exhortation is not just a sympathetic encouragement, even though the Bible does talk about mercy and comfort. This exhortation should include the reminder of who God is and His call to rejoice in all things, to have an attitude that expresses itself most in a gratitude for what God has done. 
And don't miss the sober warning of verse 14. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. We can't just begin well. We need to finish well. Now turn for a moment to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6 in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 10, just like the author in, in the book of Hebrews, Paul reminds the Corinthian church about the example of the Exodus too. And he concludes, These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but what the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may endure it. And so Paul says, these things, this story of the Exodus that the author of Hebrews reminded us of, that he reminds us Paul does in 1 Corinthians 10. They are written down not just to recount to history, but they are written down for your instruction and my instruction. They are examples of unbelief. They are examples we do not want to repeat. I'm reminded of some of the Psalms in which the psalmist rises up and he says, tell the next generation of the stories of the past so that they will not repeat the same examples. And at the end of Hebrews 3, we read the sobering fact, God was angry with those who had sinned in unbelief. He swore that they would not enter his rest. And then he applies, the author does, this warning to us in chapter 4, therefore... Since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Why? Because the Israelites were so close. You would have thought, based on the fact that they crossed the Red Sea, this is the church. Right? This is the church. They stood on the very banks of the Jordan, gazing at the fertile land, sending the spies over. Right at the very beginning of the Exodus, God would have gone with them, just as He had with Egypt. But instead of becoming filled with faith, they became filled with fear, and not fear of their God in heaven, but fear of the so-called giants in Canaan. And as a result, their unbelief keeps them from crossing the river, dooms them to die in the desert. And you may be asking, is that saying then that we can lose our salvation? Well, if you're asking that, remember Hebrews 2.15, that Christ died to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So, Loud and clear, Christ died to deliver us from the wrong kinds of fear, from the fear of 
the future, the fear of death, the fear of a meaningless life. Christ wants a fearless people. He wants a people who live in the most dangerous neighborhoods without fear. He wants people who are lacking fear to spread the gospel, to speak to neighbors, and to do so by faith in his promises. But that does not mean that all types of fear are destructive. There is still one thing that all Christians must fear, according to Hebrews 3 and 4. And that is unbelief. Unbelief is at the root of sin. Yes, there are many specific sins like lust and envy and pride and the rest, but these are the rotten fruit that hang on a rotten tree. And the root of that tree is unbelief. And I want you to notice from our chapter that the lack of evidence is not the cause of unbelief. It's not as if if we only see God working powerfully in our life and have a few amazing blessings, then I will have no problem with trust. That's not it at all. That's the lesson of the Israelites. They had all the evidence they needed, but notice in verse 1 it says, let us fear. Plural. Us. Again, reminding us that we are all in this together. I think of a sailing ship that's on a turbulent sea and how the crew must work together. No one can afford to grow slack in their work, not just because they're all needed at the post, but because a lack of watchfulness will lead to a person potentially being swept overboard. It's that kind of attitude that we have to have in the church. Because this is war. Because this is serious. Sin is deceitful. It advertises pleasure. It delivers pain. And unbelief has a way of rewriting history to make the past look more attractive. The Israelites in a short time period forgot how bad slavery was in Egypt. Their slave wages and provisions seemed like a banquet and they were ready to die in the wilderness rather than move forward. We have to watch for this in the church. We have to watch for the deceitfulness of sin that rewrites our past. We have to be sober. We have to be diligent. We have to be fighting not only for joy. We have to be fighting for gratitude. We have to be fighting for good examples. Attitudes that are giving thanks in all things. And we need to realize that every person in this body is an important part, not only because they have gifts to share that edify the whole body, but because there is always that danger of drifting, always that danger of giving in to unbelief and rebellious complaint. And let me give a caveat here. I'm not saying that it's inappropriate for a church member to question the wisdom of a decision of a church leader. That's not the kind of complaining that we're talking about. I'm not talking about somebody who wants to strive for greater excellence in the Christian life and worship. And being at times disappointed with where we are or where he or she is and and wants something better based upon God's Word. 
What we're seeing here in these chapters and what is sinful is the type of complaining that is at the heart of chronic, grumpy, complaining, sour spirits that keep rising to the surface in the words that we say and the way we live our lives instead of ones that are constantly giving thanks to God. It is the first step towards a stubborn rebellion. And it is the first step towards drifting away. And I'm struck how within a few verses, the author puts the burden on the corporate church, on us, to exhort one another. Let us fear. Let us exhort one another today. Not merely for our own growth in Christ, but for theirs as well. You can't change someone's heart. And you can't sanctify your brother or sister, but you can exhort, you can edify, and you must exhort and edify. That's what the author is telling us here. It is not just about you by yourself. It's not just about you and your family. We are a family. And a good and mature church, therefore, is not going to be defined by the size of its building or the number of its programs or the amount of people attending on a Sunday afternoon or money in the bank. A good, mature church is going to be one that leaves no stragglers lagging behind. Is not going to be satisfied with never commenting on, oh, this individual, this, this group of folks constantly are struggling. What is wrong that, that's leading them to always be discontent? If you've not read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress in a while, or at all, I encourage you to consider reading it again. Much of the middle portion of the book is an extended allegory of what we've been learning today. And that the story's hero Christian is on this journey of the Christian life. Most of you have read it before. You know that. And along the way, Christian meets hopeful. And Bunyan writes that they entered into a brotherly covenant and agreed to be companions. We have recently put together a revision to the membership a document, which we talk about how we covenant with one another. Do unto one another as the, the things that the Bible describes and to really exhort one another to godliness. And you might say, well, what does Bunyan have in mind when he thinks of a brotherly covenant in an agreement to be companions? Is it just that they're going to walk alongside one another and tell stories to one another as they go? No. In the story, what ends up happening is that Christian and hopeful, time after time, faced One trial, after the next trial, after the next trial. They meet, for example, a group led by a man named Mr. Hold the World, who tries to tempt them into pursuing dishonest gain, and together they rebuke him. They meet a man named Demas, who promises them riches if they will leave the path, and hopeful is deceived, but Christian warns him. Later, they come to Doubting Castle, they're thrown into a dungeon, and Christian this time despairs, but it's hopeful who encourages him to keep the faith and recall God's word. And as a result, with Hopeful's help, Christian finds the key that's called promise that unlocks the gate to the dungeon. That's the brotherly covenant. That's the companionship of friends. That's what Hebrews is talking about, this walking together because we know that God allows us to be tested to see what's in our hearts and we need one another so that we will be not tempted to unbelief. We will together fear unbelief, and therefore we will exhort. 
Whom have you been encouraging? Have you been living the Christian life as an isolated individual or family? Do you know the struggles of your brothers and sisters? Do you care? You must. It's all wrapped into the same admonition that's being given by the author of Hebrews here. And as we finish out the last few verses, there's one more sobering truth, and it's found in verses 2 to 3. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. There will be some for whom no amount of exhortation and edification will be sufficient. These are the ones who hear the gospel, those whom the word does not profit. Why? Because it is not mixed with faith in those who hear it. You see, you are given the admonition to exhort. You are given the admonition to care about those outside of just you and your family, to care about your brothers and sisters here in this body. But your care, as it is expressed in words of exhortation and encouragement, are words that the Holy Spirit can use to change hearts, to sanctify hearts, but ultimately it must be mixed with faith in those who hear it. The Israelites heard the good news brought by Joshua and Caleb. In fact, Joshua and Caleb, according to Numbers 14.9, they described the land as being, I like their phrase, it says, this is bread for us. This land is bread for us. And what, what he meant was that because God was with them, taking the land of Canaan would be as simple as sitting down and eating a piece of bread. It was, it, it, like our phrase, a piece of cake. You know, it, it's going to be easy. But the message of Caleb and Joshua was not mixed with faith. And because of that, the people were not able to enter God's rest, which for them meant they would not enter the promised land of Canaan. But that same promise is extended to you as well. And for you, the promised land is heaven. And when we see the word rest in chapter 4, that Greek word means to cease or to stop something. And what is it that you're supposed to stop? The Israelites were to stop their lack of trust. They were to enter into the promised land with faith that God would protect them as they conquered Canaan. So rest doesn't mean, you know, it's time. you guys have done a lot of work walking across the Red Sea. You guys have done a lot of work out here baking a little bit in the sun of the wilderness. Now you don't have anything else to do now. Just walk around the corner and the hailstones are going to fall. Well, sometimes they would. But that's not what God was going to require of them. God was going to require some effort. He's going to require faith. And usually faith is implemented in times of impossibility. In times that are too difficult for us to do on our own. Otherwise, they wouldn't require faith, right? So God wasn't telling them to stop. That's not what the rest means. The rest means there's a lot of work I have for you, but you will not accomplish it unless you rest from your own striving on your own effort. And you instead trust me. 
Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't then say, I will let you sit down and eat. And I'll feed you from the, the loaves and the fish, and you'll just get to take a nap. That's not what he says. He says, take my yoke. You still wear a yoke. You still have a work to do. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. But I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Boy, that's so important. The rest in God is not about rest from physical activity. It's a rest of eternity. It's a rest of our souls. It's a rest for that anxious, striving, turbulent, complaining, grumbling, you know, sovereign selves that have been clamoring for our attention. And God says, stop. And thankfully, for, for those who are his children, God takes his spirit and he calms those waves of that turbulent heart. He says, peace, be still. And he gives us a yoke that is gentle, a special yoke. It took a long time for Christian and Pilgrim's Progress to realize that he no longer had to carry the heavy load of works upon his back. And we can't work our way to heaven. God wants us to rest in him. But friends, based upon the authority of what we've read in these first few chapters, I have to believe this, that we, a lot of us have heard of this many, many times, but few of us believe it. I have to believe that that's true because God inspired this book to be written. He has preserved it for our edification. And we are reading it today as his authoritative word that it's, it's easy for us to leave church on Sundays and go right back to a life of struggle and anxiety and complaint and grumbling and lack of gratitude and sour hearts, just like Christian bent over a heavy load upon his back. But if we believe these words, we will stop that pattern and we will rest our souls. Have you united that hearing with faith today? Only time will tell. Would you rather die in slavery to sin or would you rather trust in God? Would you rather remain shackled to the habitual complacency that has governed your life perhaps or will you strive for something better those are tough questions but they are urgent ones because as the author says in verses seven and eight we don't have the luxury of putting off until tomorrow the faith that enables us to enter god's rest because he says today is the day that means when you leave today if there was anything about this section of hebrews in chapters three and four that appealed to you or applied to you and you said i have been too much in this mode of a person. I have not been a person of gratitude and thankfulness. I have been a person of complaint because I have not been a person trusting God's providence in my life. I've always had something to complain about. If that applies to you, today is the day to hear that because God takes that seriously. In closing, listen to the final three verses. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. 
For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore ourselves be diligent to enter that rest. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Let's pray. Lord God, you've put a sobering exhortation to us in the midst of this chapter. We are about to come into the the chapters where we are reminded of Christ, our high priest. And we're reminded of the one time for all sacrifice, for all time that, that Christ has done, at all time sufficient for eternity, that we would be clothed in the righteousness of our Savior. But before we get there, we have some more chapters to go of sober warning. And I pray that we would have the hearts and the minds and the, the constitution to, to be able to handle it in the weeks to come. Lord, you desire us to enter into those later descriptions of Christ as our priest, the later descriptions of the faithful who have followed you to enter into those chapters having been properly warned and laid a foundation for understanding those. Because even as we read about the faithful, even as we read about our Savior, we realize what they faced. And we must be strong. I pray for that strength today. I pray for not a a heart of grumbling, but a heart of gratitude. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.